I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Ken Hatfield joins me now. The acclaimed and celebrated musician has a new album out, Stirrings Still. It features Ken on the guitar and the vocalist Eric Hoffman in a new vocal and guitar duet album. It's intimate in that his playing and Mr. Hoffman's vocals are so well matched, and it's just them, their colleagues and friends, and you feel as though you're amongst friends. And it's personal, too, as there are songs on this album that Mr. Hatfield wrote, the music and lyrics, too, some he co-wrote, and some that Mr. Hoffman contributed, too. You have original compositions, and I'll ask Ken about uh, from where he gleans inspiration, and you have standards, like Any Place I Hang My Hat is Home and Answer Me My Love. I'll ask Ken about his work as a composer, as well as how he views the music business, Ken Hatfield, received the 2006 ASCAP Foundation Jazz Vanguard Award for innovative and distinctive music that is charting new directions in jazz. He is considered the leading proponent of jazz played on the classical guitar and also uh, described as a veritable Picasso of the jazz guitar world. He has performed and or recorded with a diverse list of international artists, including Charlie Bird, Jack McDuff, Jimmy McGriff, Chico Hamilton, Melissa Manchester, Stephanie Mills, Pat Benatar, Charles Aznavour, Ben E. King, and Tony Braxton, among many others. He has published six books of his compositions as well as numerous instructional books. Arthur Circle Music, the label that releases Stirring Still, has released ten of his previous albums. Visit KenHatfield.com for more information. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Ken Hatfield. Mr. Hatfield, good morning. Good morning, or actually afternoon from where I am. Afternoon where you are in there in New York, yeah. Um, th- this album is uh, just a great album to have on, to listen to. I listened to it carefully in preparing for our chat, but but uh, after that I, I, I've had it on several times over the last few days. Um, the, the, the title of the album, it's also one of the tracks off the album, Stirring Still. It makes such a good title for, for, for an album. It's, it's a piece of yours, is that right? I was curious to know what inspired it. Well, it's actually the name of the very last short story that Samuel Beckett wrote. Mm. And 20 years ago, I, you know, was, you know, kind of started uh, getting heavy into literature, and I wanted to read stuff that kind of required a little bit of work, because I felt like some of the music that I liked the most, like the late Beethoven's Dream Quartets, or some of Charlie Parker's music, or Bill Evans, that average listeners uh, listen in such a superficial way that it's hard for them to get into what's really going on in the music. And um, so I started reading, you know, more literature that required things like like that, Joyce Proust, uh-huh. uh, Borges Beckett. And uh, I came across, I was playing a concert up in Maine, and I had an afternoon uh, to kill, and I was wandering around a bookstore, and I found... Uh, uh, a collection of Beckett stories, and that was the last one he wrote before he passed away. And it really moved me because it seemed to, I don't, I don't know, speak to certain aspects at that stage of my life. Uh, you know, uncles and aunts and parents and things like that were getting to that stage of their life where they were looking at the end. And uh, so I wrote an instrumental version for a project that I did uh, called Diet that was like guitar, bass, and drums with a violinist as the kind of frontline instrument. And uh, everybody, for years, when I played on concerts, usually as a trio or a solo piece, people loved loved it and kept saying, oh, this is such a great song. You know, really, you should have lyrics to that. Uh, the 
famous bass player Harvey Yes once on a gig after we played it he said man that song is like perfect mm -hmm. you know if it had lyrics it'd be in the Great American Songbook so when I got involved in this project with Eric I decided to, to write some lyrics and I didn't take Beckett's story and set it to music the way I had done with some of uh, the poems by Langston Hughes for an earlier project I did called For Langston but I just kind of wrote my what you know the response my feelings to uh, the thing, but it was 20 years later, and it was during the pandemic, so it's kind of informed by that feeling of. I mean, I lost dozens of friends. You know, uh -huh. I work with a lot of older musicians, yeah. and uh, particularly the African American ones had not been able to avail themselves of the uh, American health services for you know for decades. Yeah. And so when COVID hit, they they got hit really really hard. Just a lot of people died yeah, and that I knew. And, and so there was this sense, and it kind of resonated with what was going on in uh, Samuel Beckett's short story, although it's really not a, the songs not, and the lyrics are not about the short story. They're about my feelings to, uh, or my expression of what, what the feelings were elicited from the short story. And um, so that's kind of like the genesis yeah. of it. And, and Eric really liked the song, so um, we, uh, you know, we recorded it and uh, when we were mixing and mastering uh, the guy that in the studio we were working in Jim Klaus he owns a studio in Brooklyn called Park West and most people know him now as an engineer but he's a marvelous musician really great saxophone player used to be in the Thad Jones Mel Lewis big band and he was the musical director for the Joffrey Ballet as a drummer so the guy's you know, not just a yeah, great engineer yeah. he's a great musician and he when I when I just brought up one day when we were mixing I gotta come up with a name for this this record, and I think we should pick a, uh, one of the one of the songs from the record. And Jim just jumped right in right away because it's got to be "Staring Still." That's such a great song. It's got to be that. And I looked at Eric, and Eric said, "Yeah, I'm down with that." So that ended up being the, being the title as well as you know one of the songs in there. Yeah, it's marvelous to hear uh, Ken. You talk about how uh, reading something, watching something, uh, inspires you to write. Uh, whether it's uh, music or lyrics, um, th that obviously adds to the richness of the the original work that that you're pondering or thinking about, and 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 it does so years later, doesn't it? Yeah, often it's it's funny because um, I think the six songs on there that I wrote the music for, uh, five of them were written before this project, mm. and uh, I wrote the lyrics to three. One of them was uh, from the project I did previously for Langston. Lonely Nocturne. So those are, those lyrics are from a poem by Langston Hughes of the same name. And uh, Eric took the song uh, "A Demand," which I had written in response to a scene in, in uh, uh, a movie, um, "A Man and a Woman." Mm. Uh, I wrote it, you know, in response to that. And then years later, Eric and I were working together, and he said, "Man, I'd really like to put some lyrics to some of your songs." I said, "Well, take some of the CDs and pick something." And he picked that and wrote those lyrics. And so, you know, since they're in English, we call the song See You Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the sentiment that Other Man expresses. Um, but it's a, it was an incredible scene in the movie because uh, the uh, two main characters whose names are, ex are escaping me right now because my French is pretty bad, uh, they, uh, you know, they meet literally at a uh, boarding school where their two kids uh, are going. And uh, since they're both going back to Paris, the man asks the woman if she'd like a ride. And sure enough, you know, 
that's the beginning of a relationship. And when when she leaves the car, um, the thing he says to her is "Ah, man," and I just like the sound of it. I didn't mm. really know what it meant, and that that kind of triggered that entire song. That's one of the songs that kind of wrote itself. So, what is it like for you, uh, Ken, to to go back and say, watch that movie, or or read Hughes's poetry again, or or read Beckett again, after you've had this this relationship in terms of say, creating your own work, inspired by that work? Well, it's funny because uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with any of the writings of Kandinsky, but he wrote a really kind of important work early in the 20th century called Concerning the Spiritual in Art. And he is trying to you know, come up with a justification for abstraction in art. And uh, the, he constantly comes back to the same idea that... Um, most people were looking at, you know, paintings of like a portrait of a person or a landscape, mm-hmm. and they were identifying with it through some experience in their own life. And he said, well, that's really fine, but that's kind of like understanding through association. It's like uh, the classic, uh, somebody hears, da-da-da-ding, ba-ba-ba-bum, and, you know, Beethoven's symphony. Yeah. And they go, oh, that's fate knocking at the door, the landlord wanting to know where the rent is. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, that's not really there. Yeah, that's yeah. done through association. And Kandinsky's idea was that that's essentially what the way people related to painting and which, why they had so much difficulty with abstract painting. And he had a phrase that I'll never forget. He said, music is about itself, and that's what we're trying to do with abstract painting. Now, that's only true of music that doesn't have words, because the words kind of tell you what the song's about. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I had written these songs having a real clear idea about what they were about as instrumentals, but I, I resisted articulating that in words, and I also felt like, you know, if you could say it in words, what do you need the music for? Yeah. So going back to it was like a reinvestigation after 10 or 20 years later. It's like, okay, well, I still have those same feelings, but there are these other things going on too, and I can see how you could actually, because by then I was much more literally astute. Uh, you can, by then I could see, well, there are ways of writing with words that don't have to, like, nail everything down, like, you know, two plus two always equals four. Sure, yeah. And so that, that's kind of what it was elicited in, you know, in all of them, and uh, that I went back and wrote lyrics for. You know, the, the, the time I spent with you had a different genesis, and as I said, uh, I demand that became See You Tomorrow. Eric wrote the lyrics for those, and then the one for Langston, the one from the Langston News Project, um, uh, Lonely Nocturne, that had already existed. So the other, the three that I was really going back to revisit were uh, Stirring Still, uh, Most Every Day, and Juniper Street. Those were the three that I kind of, you know, I, let's see what's going on. And, and they all had different frames of reference and different uh, sources of inspiration originally, which I felt like I wanted to try to reconnect with or make sure that the, whatever connection was there was still strong enough that it would survive trying to express in words what the song was expressing previously. I just, it, I think it's weird that I saw a statistic a few years ago, I think it was from the Recording Academy, that said less than 2% of all the music consumed on the planet Earth right now is instrumental music. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether it's jazz or classical or instrumental bluegrass or Indian raga or, you know, surf metal, whatever category you want to come up with, it's music that doesn't, that's not focused on the words or doesn't even have words, only 2%. Hmm. And that always
Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I do uh, workshops and things, and I count the subject counterpoint will come up. I'll talk to kids and I'll say, "Look, this isn't a narrative thing. This is not like you know a portrait. It's DNA replicating." Mm-hmm. So if you hear "bubbity beedy ba ba and the next line that comes in is going to be a replication of that line, starting on a, maybe a different pitch or an octave lower. As the first line continues, the second line joins it in, at a staggered entrance, then the third one does a similar thing. By the time you get to the third or fourth or fifth entrance, you've actually got chords, but they weren't start, they didn't start out as chords. They came, they came about by the, the replication of the individual thematic material, like DNA replicating. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you explain that to them and they, listen, they start to listen that way, all of a sudden they go, oh, my God, you're right. That's exactly what's going on. When did you uh, first meet Eric Hoffman? Um, trying to figure out how, how I can actually say this because I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> I, pl- I played uh, uh, the, w- the wedding of a very famous person on a very famous island, mm. British Virgin Islands. And um, before I went to do the gig, um, I was contacted by the uh, company that books these. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, listen, uh, a family member wants to sing at the event. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> and it turned out to be Eric. And at that time, he was playing trombone in Charlie Persip's band. And he, he was a really great musician. And it was, like, just so easy to work with him that um, I had a little steady gig. Now young musicians call these residencies. They call these residencies, I just call them, a steady gig. Yeah. Sorry, it's funny that you're mentioning that that's Eric calling me right now. He doesn't know that I'm doing this <laughs> podcast. Sorry about the... No, not a problem. Sorry about the beep, but that hopefully will end it. Anyway, um, so we started... I had this steady gig uh, every Tuesday night on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, in Manhattan. And uh, it was usually me and a bass player, often Hans Glodition, or Harvey S., or Gene Torres. And then I would bring in kind of like a guest artist Yeti Ponomaroff, the trumpet player, he did it a lot. The, for, the aforementioned Jim Klaus did it from time to time. and uh, Sometimes I'd bring in a singer, and it would be Eric. And so uh, then he started getting some gigs, and he started putting me on them. And one thing kind of led to another, and um, that's how we started working together. The, 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 um, the partnership on the album, that, that really comes through. His voice matches really well with, with your playing. Um, for people listening, how would you describe his voice, and, and, and what is that like to work with, say? Well, he's essentially like, you know, a baritone, and he comes from, you know, kind of that tradition of, you know, like like the crooner kind of tradition, like, you know, Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. you know, the quintessential example. But his lifestyle, and, you know, he lived for, he moved it up to the neighborhood I live in, El Astoria, but for a long time he lived down on the Lower East Side, which is kind of like, you know, the cutting-edge neighborhood in New York where all of the, you know, like where Basquiat and people like that lived. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of like trying to fit that crooner-sounding voice and phrasing into the aesthetic of living, you know, kind of on the front edge of where most of the avant-garde movements have come from in the United States anyway for the last 20 or 25 years. It was kind of a bit of a disjointed thing that uh, often... They didn't fit together. So as we started working together, I was always encouraging him. I said, look, you know, don't sing out of your hero. Sing out of yourself. Come from where you, where you come from. Sing from your life experience. And uh, this, proj- 
project was a real challenge for him because he's got a big voice. I mean, he can get up in front of a big band or a symphony orchestra and belt practically without a microphone, and you can hear him. Mm. So trying to sing in an intimate way with, you know, me sitting there just playing classical guitar and there's no overdubs, I'm playing everything at the same time, meant it was a real challenge for him, but he wanted to do it. You know, I, I approached him about the project because I, I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. And it also felt like the kind of thing you would do during the lockdown and during the pandemic. You can't, like, get a cast of thousands together. Mm-hmm. And so he really embraced that, that challenge. And, uh, I mean, that's all you can ask for from anybody you work with. You know, they challenge you, you challenge them. Is the challenge a burden? Or is it an opportunity? Is it an opportunity? There, there is a marvelous. Um, uh, it is a marvelous thing to listen to the, the the sound of a human voice. Say with the playing of a guitar, a guitar. It reminds me of you know Sinatra and uh, Tony Matola. Oh yeah. Um, I, I got to know Tony towards the end of his life. Oh, did you? What a sweet man. Boy, yeah. I, just, I mean, you 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 know they say all the time they don't make them like that anymore, but they really don't. And then during the pandemic, I, I discovered the Ella Fitzgerald and Joe Pass album, and there's five or six of them. Oh now. yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. just it's it's just terrific to hear. And then to hear this this your album, um, it, it adds freshness to. I was going to call it a genre, but I don't know if that's the right term. It, yeah. it, it 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 really does stir something in in one's ear or mind, if you will. Um, I'm wondering, does that do the same thing for you when when you hear? Uh, not just your work, say, but other people, other other pairings, oh, sure. say? Sure. I mean, that's why, you know, like in the liner notes, you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, there, there's also, I don't know if you know this, but at the very beginning of his career, Bing Crosby's favorite accompanist, accompanist was, uh, I can't believe I can't think of his name right now, uh, uh, Lord, used to work with Joe Venuti, Eddie Lang. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was his favorite accompanist. In fact, there's videos of... Uh, of like screen tests of Bing Crosby doing films in Hollywood, and he doesn't want the pianist to accompany him. And he accompanied him. He wants Eddie Lang to accompany him. But Eddie Lang went into the hospital like very young for you know a tonsillectomy and died on the operating table. Mm. So that kind of ended that. And a lot of people credit him as being the very first jazz guitarist, even before Django or Charlie Christian. Although he didn't play you know amplified because that didn't exist back then. But he, you know, he was a, a regular member of uh, um, Paul Whiteman's band and a you know, bunch of people. But that's that's another example. And then you got like Tuck and Patty, which is a whole other way of approaching the thing. And after we released this project, uh, my publicist, who I think you know, Dan Fortune, mm-hmm. he turned me on to this record that I didn't even know existed of uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Lorindo Almeida. Mm. Oh yes, yeah. Just, just those two. I didn't even know it existed. But it was like you know that's from a from a you know sound standpoint, that's the closest to what we were actually doing. But I I sense from listening to that record that they just went in and kind of like winged it. Whereas I tried to you know make arrangements so there'd be more contrast from song to song. That doesn't mean that Sammy doesn't sound great and Lorena doesn't sound great. It just their approach was a little more like, hey, we got a gig Saturday. We don't need to rehearse. We know all these tunes. Let's just show up and do it. Which is what jazz musicians do all the time. Yeah. yeah. But Lorena wasn't really an improviser. He would. You know, if you check out the stuff he did with the Modern Jazz Quartet, it, if you hear multiple versions of that famous uh, uh, take they did on One Note Samba, he plays the same thing every time. Mm. Yeah. So, I, you know, everybody comes up with different approaches, but I just thought there was something, you know, the term I like to use is, like, visceral about the intimacy, because 
never forget, uh, I used to do these uh, South Street Seaport jazz cruises at a radio station in New York that no longer exists sponsored. And my teacher, when I was a kid, happened to be in New York, and he came to one of them. And we played all the electric stuff that I played, and then I played some acoustic stuff. And after it was over, he said, you know, when you play the acoustic stuff, don't try to, like, play as loud as you played when you played the electric stuff. Play quiet and encourage them to come closer and listen. And I realized that that's part of the, the thing about intimacy. Yeah. You, know, you don't scream at the top of your lungs unless it's, you know, like a Hollywood movie where somebody's got a reason for doing it, that I love you. You usually whisper it. Yeah, that, that, I was going to ask about that um, in terms of um, uh, the tracks on this album. Because... Uh, um, are, are you playing differently, say, when, when you're accompanying Eric, or uh, as opposed to when you're, say, playing a solo? I mean, I guess one can p play louder in, in those parts of the song, right? Yeah, well, I, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do was to not have any amplification on this. I wanted to, you know, I mean, it's hard to explain this, because we, we weren't in a hurry to do the record. We were using it kind of as a creative outlet when there were no gigs, and mm -hmm. it was easy to get together and rehearse because we live in the same neighborhood. All we had to do was drive to Brooklyn, and, you know, if the engineer and I had to wear a mask in the studio, that was fine. Eric didn't have to wear one because you can't sing with a mask on. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it was a doable project, and in that environment, it was naturally influenced or affected by the fact that, I mean, we had friends that were sick and that were dying, and we were all worried about what was going to go on, and to some degree, we still are. Uh, so... You know, I I like to think that I can be in the moment, and whatever's going on, that's that's what what you, what you want. There's a famous uh, Shelley Mann quote. He says, "I'm a jazz musician. I never play the same thing once." <laughs> you know, so I, I hope that you know, in in this case, that you know, I was different with accompanying uh, uh, you know um, Eric than I have been with other singers that I've worked with, because yeah. uh, I've worked with a lot of singers. Usually the role of the guitar in, like when I worked with Charles Aznavour, Stephanie Mills, or subbed on Lena Horne's show, there's really a prescribed thing going on there. Um, there's not like, you know, as much, I don't, have to, I don't have as much responsibility and there's not as much freedom either. I mean, here it was just me. I tell students all the time, especially ones that are new to learning uh, about playing jazz, I said, you know, you got a piano player, a bass player, and a drummer up on the bandstand with you stop playing the music isn't going to stop yeah. so if you ain't hearing anything don't play well if i stop especially when it, you know, during the solo sections when eric starts singing if i stop playing there was nothing happening so that you know just built into that means that you kind of have to approach it from a slightly different standpoint and while it's not classical music i really did try to kind of like arrange what was going to go on during the parts where eric was singing you know probably 75 percent so mm -hmm. that I could make sure that, because let's face it, there are a lot of ballads on this record, you know, and if you got like five ballads in a row, then they're all in 4-4, four, four, and they're all in a minor key, at a certain point in time, it all starts to sound the same. So for me, one of the things about art that you really want to strive for is a balance between continuity and contrast. So that's why, you know, I've kind of, that's why, you know, spent some time working out, okay, how am I going to keep the bass line going while I'm keeping the chords going and then stay out of his way or keep the bass line and the chords going while I'm improvising on top of that all at the same time without resorting to overdubs. So that, that involves, a, for me anyway, it involves a little bit of planning. I, you mentioned Joe before, and I've 
he's a, was the quintessential example of somebody that was so in the moment. If you heard him play something that you liked last week and you asked him to play it again this week, not only did he play the arrangement totally differently, he played it in a different key with a different feel and do it all off the top of his head. Wow. I used to tell people all the time, you want to know how great he is? Bill Frizzell is another one that's like that. People will hear one record, well, I don't see what the big deal is. I said, go hear him play the same songs four or five times and you will walk away with a profound idea of why it's, he's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you do um, differently than the rest of us, say, with, with, with your hands? I mean, when you're not playing, I mean, uh, uh, do you knit? Do, do you... Um do, do you, uh, are you careful when you're using knives, say, in the kitchen? The biggest thing you got to be careful about is your fingernails on the on the. And for my case, because I play, you know, right-handed, the right hand, the the hand that strokes the strings, not uh -huh. the ones that make the pitches on the on the you know, on the neck. Uh, there's famous stories about Segovia taking you know advanced classical guitar students. They could have perfect pitch and a photographic memory. The first thing he did was look at their fingernails. Mm. And if their fingernails were like, you know, all twisted and distorted, there was no way you could get a good sound. So he wouldn't even take them as students. Wow. So, so that's yeah. So, so that's well, really I, the thing you got to pay attention to. So, so like, if you're playing a nylon string, anyway. Yeah. So, so what what do you do in terms? Of, I mean, do, 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 do you cut them regularly, or? Yeah, well, you actually file them. You don't want to cut them because that also will cause a split to develop. And you, there's all kinds of uh, uh, theories. It's funny. I would. Uh, some of my earlier records, I, I really fell in love with a lot of the Brazilian musicians. And, it, and I'd worked with Charlie Bird when I first got out of college, so he kind of turned me on to all that stuff. And then I guess about 20 years ago, I'd gone back to school to get a degree in composition because I'd written some ballets and some things like that, and mm -hmm. they were very well received. And I felt like, you know, I'm really doing this as a jazz musician, kind of just stringing ideas together, stream of consciousness. Wouldn't it be nice if I could take some thematic material and actually develop it, which required studying counterpoint. And when I went back to study it, it was like, well, you know, am I going to become a piano major or am I going to, like, learn how to do this on a, on, you know, because you're going to really write without an instrument and then check it out on an instrument. And uh, I started uh, playing a little bit more classical guitar. And about the time I did that for college, uh, my friend Steve Kroon, who was a percussionist for years in Ron Carter's band, uh, began playing with Dom Salvador, who was kind of like the elder statesman of the Brazilian musicians in New York. And he said, Dom's looking for a guitar player. You got eyes? I said, yeah. And they loved the nylon string, so that kind of really cemented me starting to do that. And a builder named John Buscarino built a guitar that I bought and fell in love with. And he was one of, he along with Bob Benedetto, were sponsoring concerts every year at the Classic American Guitar Show. And one night would be the Benedetto players, another night would be the Buscarino players. And John asked me to, um, to if I wanted to uh, play on one of the concerts, and I did. And uh, all of a sudden, all these magazines started writing articles that I was doing something other cats weren't doing, and that you know should, they should check me out. But there's limitations on it because a lot of jazz musicians want to play forcefully, and you just can't play but so forcefully with that kind of instrument, even when it's amplified, because it'll start to feed back. Mm -hmm. So. I went down that road, and one of the musicians I was fortunate enough to work with, he played on two of my records, Phoenix Rising and Dyad, his name's the Duke of the Ponseca. He's a really great drummer from, from Rio that lives in New York now. And he was telling me all the time, he says, man, you know, I know, you, you're, you know you're always messing with your fingernails, he said, but you should, but Homero Labombo was even more messing with his fingernails all the time. <laughs> I said, well, I said to Duke, you know you can't play. I mean, you're from Brazil. you got to know this better than me. You can't play if they're broken. 
Because yeah. the space between the strings, you can't get your finger between them without choking out the, the string. So if you're playing two notes on an adjacent string and you stick your finger in between them, the fleshy part is going to stop the string from ringing. So you, you kind of have to play with nails. Yeah. And you, you know, otherwise you do it with picks, and the problem with doing it with picks is you can't mute the open strings, which if you have a really responsive instrument, it's kind of like playing the piano with a sustain pedal on all the time. So you've got to come up with strategies for how you're going to mute the, the, if you're playing a melody on the top three strings, the bottom three strings are ringing. That's where it's very yeah. different than playing an electric guitar. I can't wait to, to listen to the album again, knowing all this, because I, this is fascinating to me. I don't play any instruments, and, and this is just fascinating to listen to in terms of these are things I'd never thought about, and, and so I, I thought I'd ask you, since I have you on the phone, um, what it's like, you know, and, and, and this is just great. Um, back to the album for just a sec. Um, the, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a track on the album, Most Every Day, and um, about a year ago, I, I was uh, wanting to see everything that Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy did, oh, and so okay. I actually bought the, the the movie to dance with a okay. white dog. And I haven't, yeah. I haven't it's just sitting in, on, on behind me on my desk here. Um, that song, "Most Every Day," was inspired by your watching of that film. It's inspired by one line in it. It was just something about. I'm trying to remember. She's a very famous uh, African American character uh, uh, actress. That's in the film. I guess she plays like the yeah Esther Roll. I think yeah. yeah yeah exactly. That's who it is. I couldn't recall recall her name to mind. Sorry. Uh, and at some point, you know, Hume Cronin is talking to her. He doesn't really know her that well, but, he, but Jessica Tandy has passed away. So a lot of the movies kind of going back and forth between the the future and the present. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in the film about you know like. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you, but yeah. essentially he's tr coming to the end of his life, and he's got you know like uh, offspring and relatives that they're trying to get a hold of like whatever he he owns, sure. yeah. and he's not particularly interested. And he keeps having these recurring memories, and they're triggered by him seeing this white dog. Right. But at some point he's talking to um, uh, the, the woman that I guess had been you know, a maid or something with, mm -hmm. with Jessica Tandy. And she says to him, she says, you know, Missy liked to do things that you didn't even know about. And he said, like, what? He said, well, she liked to play the piano most every day. And I'm from the South. My wife's from Memphis. I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. And there was just something about that sound of her voice saying that, that all of a sudden I heard the ba-doom, ding, 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 And the song kind of wrote itself. Yeah, oh, I can't wait to watch that too. <laughs> um, they're, they're wonderful uh, covers of standards on this album. The a "Answer Me, My Love," for example, is a favorite. Um, uh, it reminds us of the Nat Cole recording. But well, I didn't even know about that. You know, I, I mentioned in the line notes. Literally, it was it, it, right in the first couple months of the pandemic, and my wife is an art historian, and there was someone she was working with who had gone blind, and she needed to go over, you know, periodically and kind of helped the woman with some of the work that, that she had to do. And uh, because of the pandemic, uh, my wife would go into her apartment in Upper East Side and, and um, you know, work for like an hour or two and then come back. And I would, you know, find a, if I could find a place to park, I'd walk around the neighborhood. Early on, it was easy to find a place to park because yeah, nobody yeah. was in town. But gradually it got to the point where it was harder and harder. So I'd sit in the car and I was listening to WBGO one day and heard Keith Jarrett play it. And I was, I was literally 
like brought to tears in my car. It was I couldn't believe. It. I thought Keith must have written the tune because I didn't know the tune. And so I went home and checked because they, you know, they, didn't, they don't always identify nowadays on radio stations. They don't tell you who the sidemen are. Sometimes they don't even tell you the tunes they just played. Yeah, yeah. So I had to go back and look at their playlist, and I found it. And as soon as I looked it up, the first thing that popped up was the Nat King Cole thing. So when we were searching for material for the record, I didn't want to force Eric to sing nothing but stuff that I wrote, and I wanted to give him some latitude. And I suggested that one to him, and he heard it and just loved it. There's also a really great Joni Mitchell version of it. Oh. With an orchestra that's, and, you know. Yeah, I think I've heard that. It's, just, it's the older Joni Mitchell version. Like, uh, the, it's around yeah. the same time she did that famous version of uh, Both, Both Sides, Sides Now, now yeah. at the, that she did at the, you know, the Montreal Olympics. Mm. Which is, I mean, you know, look, you know, like her or don't like her, you know, she personifies, you know, a kind of artistry that's very, very rare. I mean, when I hear her sing, you know, what, and she almost sounds like a, like a male voice now, her voice is so low, but when she sings both sides now that way, it's like, man, yeah. she sounds like she lived everything she's talking about in that song. And then to think she wrote that when she was in her 20s. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's unbelievable to, to, to consider that. And, um, yep. Um, there's a, a wonderful record I, I love on the album, The Time I Spend With You. I understand that has an interesting genesis. Well, Eric and I had been doing um, some home concerts for a young man, young, he's in his 50s now, mm -hmm. that had had a, uh, some kind of an aneurysm or something. He ended up being a quadriplegic. It was really, you know, devastating thing. And his family is, is like an amazing family, like his uncle is Daniel Liebeskin, the architect. Mm. And Eric and I would go over every other Tuesday and play like a couple hours because the kids, I mean, love music. And it's weird. He could be the only one in the room in a wheelchair and we'd start playing. And it was like, there might have, you might as well have been playing for like 2,000 people. That's how strong the energy was that was coming back. I tell people all the time, when you're playing, you don't necessarily have to see people to know they're listening. You can feel it. It's kind of like you throw a ball against the wall. And if there's nobody listening, the ball just hits the wall and falls directly down to the floor. But if somebody's listening, it bounces back. And where I grew up, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Virginia Beach, surfing was a big thing. Uh -huh. So the metaphor I like to use is surfing. No matter what kind of shape you're in and what kind of stuff you practice, when you get out there, the wave, you didn't create that wave. Now, if a great wave comes along, you can do things that you couldn't do on a crappy wave. And that's kind of what it's like when people really listen. They don't get how responsible they are for providing the energy that drives the performance because we live in such a passive world where everything's available at a keystroke and you don't have to invest anything, not even your attention. But when we would play for this young man named Jeremy, it was amazing. So we started to really you know, look forward to playing for him every bit as much as we were told he was looking forward to us playing for him. And one day after a concert, he, uh, we finished, he said he had an idea for a song he wanted to write with us. And he, you know, kind of said the opening lines. And as soon as he said them, I heard a little chord progression and a melody, and I played it, and Eric sang it. Next thing you know, we had, like, you know, about the first half of uh, the, ver the verse to a song. And for the next, you know, few months, I kept saying, well, we got to have a bridge. And he didn't seem to understand what that was enough. So I said, well, look, how about if your mom, Annette, because she's a published poet and author, mm -hmm. who wrote this amazing book uh, about her father, uh, how he survived the Holocaust and all this stuff, and being in a Russian gulag and everything, called In the Unlikeliest of Places. I mean, it's 
song form that well, but she's a great poet, so she wrote what became the lyrics for the two verses, because she didn't understand you only really need, I mean, the choruses, you only really need, or bridge, rather, you only really need one, you don't need two, but she, what she wrote was so great that it, it, it shaped the form of the song by having two bridges, and I had to fine-tune a little bit just to make it fit more with the melodic structure, because I'd already written the melody and the chords to the bridge, and she was very amenable to that. So we did it, and then she published a book of poetry, and she wanted to include the song uh, with a link to a SoundCloud page where you could hear the song uh, in the book, which actually came out like more than a year before the CD was released, but because we love these people so much, you know, and they're such great human beings, I didn't want to delay her thing in any way, so we worked up, you know, on the copyright registration and clearances and all that stuff so she could get it in her book and people could hear it right away. But that's how it came about. It came about because Jeremy had an idea and we all worked together. And in fact, that's kind of the genesis for the record because yeah. right after we we wrote it, uh, they paid us for the next series of five concerts. And um, I, when, the COVID, when COVID hit, I wanted to give them their money back. And they said, oh, no, come on, you guys are musicians. <laughs> it's going to be harder for you than it is for us. Don't worry about it. But would you do us a favor? Would you record the song on your iPhone? And I said, well, we'll do one better. And so we went into Park West Studios and recorded that and Juniper Street on the same session. And we liked it so much. So we said, hey, you know, this might be an idea for a record. Let's keep doing it. So every month or so we go in and record it. You know, we'd practice a little bit. I'd come up with some ideas for an arrangement. We'd run tunes by each other. We'd get another couple, two or three together, and we'd go in and record. And that's how the record came about. So that song really was the impetus to do the entire project. It's a marvelous view onto the, the, this collaboration, not just with you and Eric, but all the other people along the way. Um, you mentioned a moment ago the, the energy that you feel when you're playing, especially before an audience. How do you uh, bring that sort of sensibility, if you will, to, to a recording studio? Where, in this case, it's it's probably just you, Eric, and an engineer. It, it that's exactly what all it was when we were recording. Uh, it, it's it's hard. I I tr I try in my own mind to imagine an audience there. I once heard the stories of uh, Cecil Taylor. He used to you know work as a uh, dishwasher, and then he would go back to uh, his apartment in Brooklyn with a grand piano and play for three or four hours, not practice, just play like he was playing a concert, and he just imagined there was an audience there. And that, that metaphor, that story always stuck with me. It's like, well, yeah, that's the way you do it. Now, to be 100% honest, I'm not nearly as good at using that energy as I'd like to be, the energy that comes from the audience, but that's just due to the fact that most of my career has either been playing in places that were like corporate gigs because gigs and and the record industry now pay so little mm -hmm. that that's the only way you can survive in a place like New York. Or I'm working as a sideman with other people, and the gig is really there. So the only time I get a chance to try to use that energy and write it is when they feature me for a, you know, a one or two songs in the course of an entire concert. That's one of the things that I'm hoping to do with the next stage of my life and my career is to get the opportunity to play more for audiences that listen attentively, because that's really the only way you can take your skill set up to the next level. It's like using the surfer metaphor I used before. If I never get to ride big waves, you better not take me out to Portugal and put me on those 50-foot waves. <laughs> I'm going to get myself killed. Yeah, yeah. You got to, you know, you build up to that stuff. How hopeful are you for the future in terms of, say, listening audiences? Though, I mean, do, do you think someone fresh out of uh, university today could um, say? 
um, hence uh, have a career that you have had? I, I think it's, it's unfortunately the music industry is starting to mirror the rest of the overall global economy with the haves and the have-nots. You've got like the 1% or the 1% of the 1% that are getting 90 or 95% of all the, you know, the profits, and that leaves, you know, 5 to 10% left to be divided among the remaining, you know, uh, 90 or 95%. Mm-hmm. And that's really the problem. You know, you know I am uh, reluctant to go here, but I'll give you one simple example. Yeah. And within the last year or so, we got a raise on... Uh, the rates, that, the minimum rate that you can pay for people for streaming. It's now in the United States 0.0026 of a penny. Now, I was, on this record, we're going to do a vinyl release, but you know, the vinyl won't be available until June because it takes that long to get vinyl made, even though we you know, yeah. basically started the process at the same time we started the CDs. The going rate in the U.S. anyway, in most of the world, for vinyl is $30 U.S. For me to generate the same amount of money from streams that I generate from selling one vinyl record, I have to have 11,538 streams. Wow. British Parliament did a study last year and determined that 85% of all musicians with their music on streaming platforms, whether it's a single one or all of them, are generating less than $250 a year in income. Wow. So, you know, the, the problem is, is that a whole generation has been sold on the idea that you give your content away to right. become famous. Mm-hmm. And that if you're famous, you can create a brand and you can monetize your brand by selling merch. But they never question the fact that if I'm selling T-shirts with my picture on it and you're going to want to buy one because I gave my music away, the long-term effect of that is that it devalues music. Yeah. I, I'm of the opinion that you appreciate things that you work for, that you invest time and effort and attention and even, God forbid, money in acquiring. I remember what it was like to come through old cutout dens in Boston and find out-of-print Riverside, West Montgomery recordings. Mm-hmm. It was like a gold mine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got them for $1.75 or $2, but it was like I still got them. And recently, because we had to do, a, you know, we're doing a vinyl run of this. The way that works is they send you like five test pressings, and you got to listen to all of them on multiple turntables. Well, who has multiple turntables? Yeah. So I went out and bought a, a really good turntable because my old one, the belt had broken, and when I put a new belt on it, I could tell it was turning like slow because everything was flat. So I went out and bought a good one, and I have a friend who came by one day, and he wanted to hear the vinyl. So I put it on, and this is a guy that talks even more than me, and he just sat there in, you know, like, rapt attention, listening all the way through. And then when you, side A was over, I get up and flip over to play side B, and he looks at me and he says, Kenny, if listen my experience of listening to music was like that i'd be listening to a lot more music mm-hmm. the thing about when you can get it without having to do anything but just hit a button and then it, it you don't feel bad about going and vacuuming in the living room or doing the dishes while the music's on yeah yeah so the ubiquity of it the ease with which you can acquire it, and the fact that you don't basically have to pay hardly anything for it if, if you pay anything for it it devalues music everywhere and see it filtering down to like what, it, what you get paid when you play in clubs. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when people would book me. Like if I flew to Vancouver, which is a beautiful city, I love it. I haven't been there since I was there with Charles Asimov like 20 years ago. But it's, you know, if I were to fly out there to play a gig, 20 years ago, 
they would give me round-trip plane tickets, hotel rooms for my musicians, and a 50% deposit. Now you don't get any of that. So if you fly out to play the gig and something happens that the club owner doesn't pay you, yeah. you're, you're stuck. You've got to, still got to pay your musicians. you still got to pay for those plane tickets, those hotel rooms, and you still, you know, and you can't find a lawyer in New York to sue a club in Vancouver or Los Angeles for under ten grand. Yeah, uh, it's not going to happen. So, this is, all you can do is go on on social media and say bad things about them, and then it turns into like a giant food fight where they say bad things about you. And unfortunately, it, it's like when you look at that entire ecosystem, it's a very unhealthy ecosystem right now. It's like a barrier reef that's dying. Mm. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there are there are things that could change all this. Like, I don't know what the laws are like in Canada, but in the United States, most of this was precipitated by a single bill, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was signed into law in 1998. In that bill, there's a, a safe harbor provision called Section 512 that essentially limits the liability of the digital service providers when they facilitate things that would otherwise be illegal, like copyright infringement. Mm. So if somebody steals my music and posts it on YouTube, i got to chase that individual. I can't go after YouTube or Google, their parent company, or Alphabet, the parent company of Google. i got to go after the individual, and they frequently will let the individual set up uh, an account without any verification of their ID. Right. They just have to have a, a valid email address. So that means i got to chase somebody who I don't even know their name. And it can take me a couple of years to chase them, and during the time that it takes me to chase them, to get them to take down what they posted of my music without a license or without the rights to do so, what happens is all the money that's generated from data mining and advertising, the platform gets to keep it, even when I get the person to take it down. And 15 minutes after they've taken it down, those platforms often let the same person set up another fake ID account and repost the same copyright infringing content. And when you approach them about it, they go, well, we didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, so what a lot of artist rights activists, including myself, uh, are, are trying to fight for is reform of the eligibility requirements for Section 512 limited liability, that particular safe harbor. And there's several things in particular they need to do. One of them is, is they need to hold them to the letter of the law, which originally stated that they would facilitate the development and implementation of what are called standard technical measures, STMs, which would prevent copyright infringement. Now there's a plenty of those out there. Like, for example, when I mixed and mastered uh, Stirring Still, we didn't just send in audio files. We used this program called DDP, which stands for Disk Description Protocol, that embeds all of the metadata pertaining to rights ownership within the actual audio file. Mm. So there's no way that they can say that, that we didn't know who the owners were. Yeah, yeah. And there's uh, recently in the United States there was a law passed called the CASE Act, which stands for Copyright Alternative and Small Claims Enforcement, which sets up a tribunal within the U.S. Copyright Office for anybody to have a bring bring a suit for uh, copyright infringement up to thirty thousand dollars. And you don't need a lawyer. There's a hundred dollar filing fee, which I believe they recently waived. So that means that anybody that you know steals your music, in theory, you could go after them. The problem is, is it's a form of arbitration, so both parties have to agree. Now, if I say you stole my music and you want to get your good name back, you'll show up and defend yourself. But Google won't. So what we want is them to require acceptance of the jurisdiction of the case tribunal as, all, as a, an additional requirement to even claim 
512 eligibility for limited liability under Section 512. If you get those two things happening and you can get some reform of the antitrust laws, I think the music business will do really, really well and start to prosper again because you can get your market back. Indeed, indeed. Speaking with you and and listening to this album, uh, Ken, it it just reminds us about how important music is, not just in our lives, but um, in the future especially. Um, People can go on your website, I guess, and and order the CD, and and, uh, I guess in June they can get the vinyl. Is that right? That's where where things stand right now. The the record was released a a week ago today, and the vinyl should be available sometime in June. I mean, they've already told us that they're getting ready to ship it. uh, but, you know, they ship it by boat from the Czech Republic. So that means I'll see it in June. Yeah. Well, I, I, so I've kept you longer than I said I would, but it's been such a delight to speak with you. Congratulations on, on this album and, and continued good luck. I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much for, you know, affording me so much time. I mean, that's incredibly generous of you. And, you know, from from what I know of your work, congratulations to you as well, because, you know, you, you're trying to do stuff that's thought-provoking and, as the world gets more and more complicated, the lack of thought, the lack of thinking, the lack of critical thinking skills is not going to serve us well. So anybody and everybody that's, you know, aligned themselves with trying to get people to, like, reflect and think and feel, uh, you know, they're on the same team I want to be on. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. The website for more is at kenhatfield.com. The album is called Stirring Still. It's uh, from uh, Arthur Circle Music. And um, the uh, guitarist on the album, uh, Ken Hatfield, joined me on the line from New York City in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.